morning, if you look in your outline there, we are in part number 13. My, how time flies, huh? And here I was thinking this would just be a little series we do in the summer. <laughs> uh, we're about to start fall and we're still introducing God. And if you remember, you know, the objective for us in this series was to, to back away from this over-familiarity that we have with anything in our lives. You know, at some point, you might get, want to get introduced to your spouse. You might want to get in, introduced to your children. You know, whenever you just become too familiar with something, it loses an aspect of what it was meant to be. And so the series was to help us step back from what we thought we knew about God and take a fresh look at who is this God. And this morning, uh, this was a challenging message to wrestle through. The title of it is Meet the God-Revealing Man. Uh, as we studied through this series, our, our ambition was to, to look through the lives of people in Scripture and to see how God was revealed to them and through them. And obviously, we're, we're, I'm trying to come towards the end of this series, and it would be impossible to do a series on God without, without doing a significant portion on the person of Jesus Christ. Um, which is where we'll go today, but I think I put in your outline there, a series on an infinite God could easily have no end. <laughs> you know, part 13 could just be the introduction to a series that would go on forever, right? And I was reading this, and I hope you'll get encouraged by it. Wayne Grudem, in his Systematic Theology, speaks about the knowability of God. And he says, because God is infinite and we are finite or limited, we can never fully understand God. It is not true to say that God is unable to be understood, but it is true to say that he cannot be understood fully or exhaustively, right? We don't ever want to just throw our hands up and say, I'm finite, God's infinite, I, I, I can't understand God. No, you can understand God to the degree in which God has given you the ability to understand him, and he has given us an ability by the Spirit, and to the degree in which he has revealed himself, which he's not revealed everything, but he's revealed enough for us to know. It means that... We will never be able to know too much about God. For we will never run out of things to learn about him. And we will thus never tire in delighting in the discovery of more and more of his excellence and of the greatness of his works. And, and I thought as I read that thought, you know, Lord, what, what an adventure. Every time I open the word, what an adventure. You know, now, some of us have lost our sense of adventure. I mean, be honest. If you've been a Christian for a while, you start losing your sense of adventure because you start thinking, well, I know most of this. You know, where's it going to go this morning that I don't kind of already know? Unless I'm going to go into the Koran or something. You, you've already heard most of this, right? But yet, God is an inexhaustible topic. And I can say this. And I'm the one speaking this morning. I've been saved 31 years now. And I would say the, the longer I've walked, the more I've realized how little of this I really know. And if I don't know this really, really well, I can guarantee, it can be guaranteed that I don't know God very well either. Because this is not an exhaustive book on God. This is just a partial, slender revelation on God on what we needed to know in this human existence of ours. So I'm excited. I was just excited about every time I'm opening the word, realizing, Lord, 
uh, you know, that, that first step toward you. I remember those, those years and times and early in my walk of, of, you know, getting my first study Bible, right? You guys remember back when you got your first study Bible? You know, back then I think there weren't but a couple of study Bibles out. So for me to get a study Bible, ah, man, I was so excited. I, I, I loved the smell of it. I, mean, I just loved opening it and studying in it. I was in college and went away to a conference and, Man, just, there was quiet times and there was conferences teaching you about how to do quiet times. And it, was, it made you just want to launch into the word. And then we get saved for a long time and we kind of interact with God very differently. Kind of lose a little bit of that zeal, that passion. But if I can just get reminded again that, that God is inexhaustible. There are depths to everything that we will discuss that have greater and greater depths. You know, we've talked about different aspects of God, the love of God. Well, does any of us think we've really exhausted our understanding and insight into the love of God, the faithfulness of God, the power of God? Have we exhausted those things? Now, there's a great adventure that awaits us. Now, I'm going to get, I'm use this as a promotional moment here. Um, you know, it's been very encouraging. You guys have been wonderfully encouraging. You always are. I always get emails and uh, stopped and quick phone calls and uh, of how a message may or may not have, have touched you. And in this series, you guys have sent all kinds of feedback uh, on, on the series. But one of the things that we want to do is we want to export your encounter with God out of this meeting and into your personal times with God. And to help you do that, we're, we're putting together a class right now. It's for the School of the Word. It will start October the 10th, October the 3rd, October the 3rd. And it's a, it's a class on how to read and study the Bible. Now, everybody who's here is going to like, well, I kind of I got that. I, I, well, I think I know how to read the Bible. Um, well, we do and we don't. I mean, we're always needing help in that category. I, I need help in going back to how I look at the Bible, how I come to things. And, and sometimes we get questions from folks is, how did you get that out of that text? Um, well, what we want to do is we want to, this is sort of like the Food Network, right? You, have you seen, how many guys watch the Food Network? You know, Food Network is kind of like uh, you get to go behind the scenes with these chefs and how they make their stuff what secret ingredients they put in and how they cook this. And if you add that to this, at just the right moment, you get this cathartic food experience. And then they serve it up and it's got little sprigs on the edges and drizzles and stuff. And they, they give it to you. But when you're there watching them do the whole thing, there's, they're equipping you to do this. Right? Our, our food bill gets real big because my wife sees these things and it's kind of like, ooh, African dum-dum-dum-dum dog or something. I was like, let me go get some of that and we can cook that. And, and it's like, mm, that's going to be a little bit more than ground beef, I think. Um, but, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you sit down, you have a good meal and it's wonderfully satisfying. You know, but then you go home, you know, and you got hamburger helper and stuff going on and it's just not the same, right? Well, what we want to do is we, we don't want to have this restaurant Christianity, you know, where we come to church and, and we, get, we get to feast on the word together and we go home and we feel like we're eating cold hot dogs, you know. No, no, we, we like for this to be more like Food Network. You come, you come to this class that we're doing, this School of the Word class, 
that's going to teach you how to mix in ingredients, how to, how to pull the resources into the Bible so that when you sit down, you get to feast on the word of God. Because this, this is not like a book that's only meant for those with trade secrets. You know, somehow, you know, if you're a pastor, you get some kind of special permit on reading the Bible. You get to go into the Bible and where no one else can go. Uh, no, not at all. There's some basic tools that take us into the word. And when we learn to do that, basic study dynamics, uh, it opens the word to us and the adventure starts. And when the adventure starts, you're going to find yourself wanting to go back. Now, I can tell you right now, if you're having a hard time in your personal devotional life getting into the word of God, it's probably because the techniques you use to get into the word of God don't take you very far into the word of God. And you keep going back into the surface of everything you look at. And you've seen that, and I've seen that, and I've seen that, and I've seen that. And, you know, why go back? I've seen that. Why open that passage? I've seen that. Listen, God is inexhaustible. We might just need a little refresher course on how to use the tools that take us deep into God. So I'm looking out in this room right here, right? There's a room upstairs that we can put, I don't know, 280, 300 people in in chairs. All right, I know there's a lot more in here than in there. We'll gladly move the school of the word down here. Gladly. Because there's nobody in this room who doesn't need to develop the adventurous appetite for the Word of God more fully in their lives. There's no one in this room. No one in this room. There's no leader in this room. There's no person who just came to Christ in this room. There's no one in this room who doesn't need to be in this class. So, no matter who you are, if you're breathing... If you can hear my voice, if you're listening on the internet in Australia, you need to be in this course. <laughs> All right? So please make some time for that. All right, let's move into this, this thought here. As Mr. Grudem says, we are delighting in the discovery of God. We are discovering God. Now, how many of you know the difference between discovering God and inventing God? You know, there's a difference between those things. My kids used to always get those confused when they were young and they were reading through history or science, and they'd get those words mixed up, and it always sounded so funny. It's like, Dad, when did, when did Columbus invent America? <laughs> you know, you knew what they meant. You know, it's like, who was the guy who invented electricity again? They just would use those words interchangeably. And as funny as that is for a kid, adults are running around inventing God. You come to the subject of God, and you begin to impose ideas on God. And sometimes people get really emotional about it. They kind of wear themselves on their sleeve, and it's like, I could never believe in a God who's this and this and this. Well, tell me about your God. Well, I believe that God is this, and he's this, and he's this. Really, you believe that? I believe God is this and this. I could never believe. And so we, we come as though we can take a position and then come to God and impose that position on God. And God has to be whatever it is that we just have stated about him. You know, nobody invented America. It was here. You just simply pull up to the shoreline and begin to discover it. You don't, get to, you don't get to never be there and say, you know, I believe it's just a big desert wasteland. That's what I believe. And you well, when you pull up and you find trees and valleys and lush green pasture lands and rivers that are flowing, you get to discover that. You don't get to invent it. 
there may not be a more important dynamic for people in their pursuit of God than to realize you and I simply get to discover God no matter what our traditions have been before we came to the Bible, no matter what our personality is when we come to God, we just get to discover who he is, not to invent him and make him up. Now, the Bible uses a word throughout Scripture. It's this word glory, and it's a great word. It's a big word. It's used a lot. It's a, it's a word that sort of describes the character and personality of God, if you will. And, and when you understand the scripture, you find out that everything exists for the glory of God. So you, you find out the great purpose statement of our life is that we exist to make God known, to put on display these dynamics and characteristics of God. It's almost like it's, good, it's almost a good chemistry word. You know, when you talk about all the stuff in this room, there's, there's chemistry in everything in the room. Right? When we say water, you know some things about water. You, you, you know it can get heated up and turn into steam and power can come from it. It can be frozen and it turned rock hard. That thing that was so soft when you touched it a moment ago can become rock hard when it becomes frozen. You know, it's, it's made up of H2O. It's got two hydrogen atoms that are joined to an oxygen atom. That, that, that's what makes up water. Well, when we've studied through this series, we've been studying the glory of God. What? what what makes up God? What is God like when we examine who he is? Now, some things reveal God. There's hints of the glory of God all throughout his creation. Right? Look in these passages. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, there's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Right? So, in other words, when you look up at the expanse of the heavens and you look out at creation, God says the heavens declare the glory of God. It's like there's a billboard in the sky. And if you stare at it for a few moments, it starts to speak to you. And your mind starts to move. How far away is that? How many stars are there? If you could count them, can we even see them all? Right? We put the Hubble telescope out there so we could get out from the glare of Earth and see. And, and we've seen way, way out there, but we can't find the edge of this thing. Can't find where it stops. And so as you stare into this vast creation, at some point... The thought has to come. Where'd this come from? And immediately you're on to something. And the silence was screaming that at you the whole time. Right? The heavens are speaking. Creation speaks, God says. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Right? God says, through the things that have been made, there's evidence, there's a trail that points to God. 
even if it's silent, even if you stood out over a mountain range and there were no words the whole time, it is saying something back to you. God says that. You're reading something. And God says, no, one's, no one has an excuse. I've, I've been speaking to you. I've made some things known. There's evidence. Or if you walk through the woods and you see a giant paw print and you're alone with no weapons, you know, what's, what's going through your mind? Bears don't exist. You know, you're totally at peace, right? <laughs> Wrong. You're looking around because even though you haven't seen a bear nor have you heard a growl, there's evidence that there's one there. Right? When I was a kid, we, we used to hunt North Louisiana with my granddad. We used to deer hunt. Now, I say that because we never actually saw any deer where we went. It was a great time, and it was always fun, and we stayed out overnight, and we were kids, and we walked around the woods with guns, and that was enough. But there were tracks. There were deer tracks all over the place. You know what that does for a kid when a kid sees deer tracks? You know, it, I never saw a deer, but I knew they were there, you know, which was a little frustrating and exciting all at the same time because it, it, it awoke faith in you. It's like if I sit on this stump long enough, he'll come back by here. You know, we never saw a deer. But was it right for me to conclude that, well, you know, because I never saw a deer, there aren't any deer? Well, no, because there were tracks there that told me there are deer. See, for God, he says, the creation has got track marks all over it. And even though you may not see me with your eyes or hear me, the track marks give away the fact that I've been here. Well, well, what do you do with thoughts like evolution? Let me just warn you what, what you might not want to do with thoughts like evolution is you might not want to use that as a defense when you stand before God. Because when you read the Bible, here's what God says about his creation. He says, I put hints about me and my creation, and I did a good job. I'm God. I don't do things poorly. I did a good enough job with my creation to give away enough hints about who I am and how to find me that if you stand before me, you're going to have no one to blame but you. What about the theory of evolution? Um, I'm just telling you, the God of the universe has said there is enough evidence about me out there that if you look at the evidence, you'll look for me next. Listen, if you're, if you're into sort of evolution, something that's influenced you and, and you're finding your definition for the existence of man out of an evolutionary process, can I just tell you, I, I, my, my background is in engineering, and so I had to study some level of science and that sort of thing to get through college. Uh, listen, Evolution commits scientific suicide right out of the box. Now, here, here's the problem with it. There's this first step that has to be taken into the evolutionary process. The second, third, fourth, and 28th steps, okay, maybe, maybe, not really, but maybe if you wanted to at least go there, you, you maybe could go there. 
You know, it's those steps that say, well, you know, evolution basically takes the position of time plus matter plus chance and welcome to the world in which we live. And so, you know, chance is a big thing there because, you know, with enough time and some matter, who knows what can happen? That, that could turn into this and could turn into that and then that could turn into this. And, and that kind of looks like that. So it kind of looks like maybe that is what happened. And there's all these thought processes. Here's where you commit scientific suicide if you're an evolutionist. Before you can get into the process of evolution, you have to have time and you have to have matter. Where did that come from? The idea of something from nothing is the most unscientific thing I can say to you today. I can't stand up with a scientific uh, integrity at all and stand and say, listen, I like to invent you to this process that creates something from nothing. Absolutely nothing. Not even time. (laughs) That's not scientific. Do you know what that is? It's faith. It's a philosophical statement based in faith. So don't anybody argue with me about, well, you know, religion, it's not scientific. Listen, if that's your version of science, then your science isn't scientific either. Because there's never been a scientific process that could ever recreate that idea. Something from nothing. And, and, you know, listen, even once you get into the something category, you got problems. Even a cell Right? A cell is made up of these, these little bitty parts, I don't know, about seven or eight of them, I think. You know, you got the nuclei and the ribosomes and the mitochondria and all that stuff. Luke and I did a science experiment last year. It's the only reason why I remember any of that. But <laughs> there, there was this fellow, uh, Michael Behay was a, a biochemist, who simply pointed out the fact that a cell exists only, only if each one of those parts is playing its part 100%. If you just reach in and you just take one of them and you turn it off, the whole cell dies and it's over. Well, so what, Keith? Well, how did the cell evolve? You know, what it's like first the nuclei came and then later the ribosomes arrived. Well, by the time the ribosomes showed up, the nuclei was dead because it couldn't have existed on its own. Does this make sense to you? This is where the process of evolution doesn't work. You know, all the birds that grew, they grew things so that they could fly and escape being eaten by this thing. Um, Okay, how did they escape when it was just a nub on one side? (laughs) You know, how long did that phase last? You know, that was a 200-year process before the nub actually got long enough to flap and then they just kind of hopped and flapped on one side for about 2,000 years before the other one. Listen, if you were hopping and flapping for 2,000 years, everything was eating you. The survival of the fittest, that thing's not going to survive. It's not fit to survive. The, the, the process doesn't work. The origins don't work. And you have a God who stands and says, I put track marks all over my creation. What would you do with them? They revealed something about me that would have led you straight to me. All right, that's the reality of what God says. Now, God's revealed his glory, and we look through some of this, and the, the moral character dimension of God gets revealed. When you stare off into space and you get something on the enormity of God, you, you don't, however, get much of the moral dynamic of God. But we've looked at guys like Abraham, and we learned something about the moral character of God, and Moses, and David, 
We learned some interesting things about the moral character of God when it came to David and how he lived his life. And Elijah and the nearness of God. What, what is God like in his personality, in his affection? Right? We learned that by studying people that were in Scripture. Uh, the creation, though, it, it can reveal power to us. I mean, God just spoke and things were created. What an amazing, unique God that could do that. What wisdom in God when God argued with Job and says, Job, can you explain to me how I did all this? There was great wisdom in the fact that the universe doesn't just collapse and fall to pieces. It upholds and runs just like God designed it to do that. But when we look at those things, do we discover whether God is affectionate, whether he's patient, whether he's a loving God or just a robot who creates universes, makes trees grow? but doesn't care about you. He's just good at creating stuff. How do we discover these dimensions about God? Well, we learned something about the glory of God when God gave the law on Mount Sinai. Right? If, if you learn anything from the law, you learn what life for a human being looks like when you get one thing right. When God is your God and nothing else is. And all the other laws flow right out of that. So we, we do learn, we do learn something about right and wrong from the law. Right? So, so God's revealing his glory, his character in these variety of places. But today we come to this unique address. We come to a location where the glory of God goes on display prominently in all categories. If you will, this, this is the key, the key to discovering God. You can discover bits and pieces of God out there. This is the key to discovering God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, right, something here is being adjusted change of direction, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, right, quick parentheses, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, all right, now back to talking about his son, he is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Right? There is a uniqueness to the Son of God that reveals God to us. He exists and reveals to us things in a way that nothing else can. That we have access to nothing that will reveal God to us the way in which Jesus Christ reveals God to us. Listen, this, this is why Christianity, the person of Christ, can never be put in the wrong category. See, Christianity, Jesus Christ is just not one amongst many religious figures. It's wrong to put him in the same sentence with Moses or David or Abraham or Muhammad or Buddha. These are all human beings. Jesus Christ is God in the form of a man. 
There's a uniqueness to him. You cannot put him in the same breath. Muhammad is not God in the form of a man. He's a man with some ideas. He's not in competition. Do you understand? He doesn't play in the same league. He's not competing with Jesus Christ for you to vote on. Hey, which religious leader throughout the history of man? Jesus isn't just some religious leader. He's unique. God says, listen, I've used all kinds of people to tell you something about me. But my word, my final word, my most clear word is in the man, Jesus Christ, who is God in the form of a man revealing who God is. Look at these other passages. John chapter 1, Jesus makes his earthly debut. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Remember, that's that word for the personality and the makeup of God. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Later in verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Okay, there's a revelation about God in the person of Jesus Christ that is unique, that cannot be found anywhere else. Stare out at the mountains all you want. Look up into the stars all you want. Listen to every person who's ever encountered God all you want. But in this person, God is made known in a way that is unique. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, speaking, Paul says to the Corinthians, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the knowledge of the glory of God, what is that? Well, that's the, the ability to know who God is and what he's really like. Where do I find that? I find it when I look into the face of Jesus Christ. He reveals God to me. Now, as we've looked at all these different dimensions, I just mentioned them quickly. You know, there's this, this revelation about God that we've studied for, you know, we're in week 13 here. We've studied 12 aspects of who God is, and we could keep going. So there's this multifaceted aspect of who God is. But, you know, as Colossians says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the, you know, it's almost like a contradiction. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the, he's the observable presentation of the unobservable God. He is, he's the manifestation of God. That's who he is, of the invisible God. You know, I've used this illustration before, and I, I can't improve on it. Um, you know, light is present all throughout this room. Right? The reason why we see, the reason why we see color in this room is because of light. But, but light is invisible. Right? You, you, you don't see light until, until you actually bend light. It's what, it's what a, a prism does. It, it refracts light. It bends the light so that you can actually see it. So if I, if I had a prism in my hand and I took a bright light and I shined it through there, 
onto that wall over there, the, this prism would divide up the light and would make it visible. And you'd have this rainbow of colors that would pop up over there onto the wall. You've seen this. You've seen this when if you're looking at jewelry or something and, and it bends the light and all of a sudden you see purples and, and blues right off the light that's, that's coming in. So for light to become visible, it needs this prism. So if you will, Jesus Christ is, is the prism through which the invisible God becomes visible. When the light hits Christ, when, when it travels through the person of Christ, you see these dimensions of God. You see vibrant colors, this rainbow of colors come through his life. And, and he is the key to ever, ever understanding God. If you're ever going to understand God as a human being, you're going to have to look at the only human being that can put him fully on display and show him to us. Right? Jesus, if you will, is, is he's that secret device in all those movies that if you could just get it and all the bad guys are after it and the whole movie line is written around how not to let them get it and the good guys are trying to keep this device from falling into the wrong hands, you know, kind of that Indiana Jones series. We found this secret device, and whoever gets this will change the course of human history. Right? Jesus is the device. He's the secret device. If you, if you take him away, you cannot see the image of God. You can see little bits and pieces of him. But to fully see the visible God, you're going to need the image of Christ. You're going to need to look into the face of Christ. You're going to need to look at the person and the work of Christ to understand God. This is why Christianity is not some disposable religion amongst many religions. It's, it's the one place where the God of the universe is made known uniquely. There's nothing else that you can go to that will make God known this way. Now, now look at the light through which this, this prism. I'm just going to, this, this would be a limited passage, but we started in this passage in Jeremiah 23. Thus says the Lord, <clears throat> let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him boast, him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now that little phraseology is scattered numerous times throughout the Old Testament. When God would reveal himself or people would pray, they would appeal to God based on who he is. They would reach into aspects of his character and call upon God's mercy in a moment of need. Well, how did they know that they could do that? Well, remember Moses' encounter with God on, on Mount Sinai. When, God, when Moses prays and asks God, God, show me your glory. God, I want to know you. I want to understand what makes you who you are. And God hides him in the rock, remember, and, and just lets him get a little glimpse on the way by. It's like after God's kind of moved on towards safety pulls back this veil, and this is what Moses gets a chance to see in Exodus 34. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. If you will, this is, if he was seeing light, these are the colors that he saw. Does that make sense? It's like the Lord hitting that light, and all of a sudden, red and green and 
blue. And this is what he saw. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And God's presence moves on. This rainbow of colors is revealing God. So that when you and I, if I stand today and I say, let me introduce you to God. These are the colors that I'm going to be displaying. Compassion. Graciousness. Slowness to anger. Abounding and steadfast in his, in his hesed, his, his love that is a covenant-type love. Forgiving, yet being righteous and just. Now, some of this stuff will tie us in knots if we don't look at it correctly. But what it doesn't allow us to do you know, is put on those, you know, those sunglasses. You know, they're kind of really orangey colored. They're called blue blockers. Remember those? Blue blockers. I got my blue blockers on. Remember that? Well, they filter out a certain color in the spectrum of light, right? We're thinking, wow, these are great glasses. It's so vibrant, but it's no glare. Somebody just figured out certain aspects of bent light make you do this more than other aspects. They figured out how to filter that out with these lenses. Now, listen, what you don't get to do with God is put on your blue blockers, and only want to see a certain dimension of God and not see him all. Because when we come to Christ, he goes on display, all of him. And we see God reveal himself to us. And I want to walk through these. And I, I took on a monumental task and tried to make it bite-size. So let me see if I can get through this quickly. Let me do, I'm going to group a few of these together. When we come to Christ, we see compassion and graciousness, and patience in God. Right? When Exodus uses this term for compassion, it's the Hebrew word rechem. And it's a little bit of a complicated word, and it's, ten, it's tending to be used together with a couple of other words. And it blends with mercy, compassion, and graciousness. It's like these, these three words hang out together throughout the Old Testament. So it's a concept of God's goodness that manifests itself in those types of feelings. His compassion, his mercy, his graciousness towards us. Wayne Grudem says, God's mercy means God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. And that's how God is. God is good to those who are in misery and in distress And and that's never more clear than in the person of Jesus Christ. God's grace means God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. Which is, again, never more clear than in the person of Christ. Remember, he, he came to his own, but his own received him not. You know how big a statement that is? For the glorious, eternal God to dress up in these rags and come to us, and we don't even slow down and take a look at him. And if we do, we reject him and mock him and end up sticking him on a cross. 
And yet he doesn't for a second get deterred by that. So you don't need to talk about, you know, I want to be like God. Oh, I, Lord, I want to be like that. I want to be someone who is so understanding of who you are that I'm on a mission for the glory of God that, you know, no matter what goes on in my life, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to find the motivation for the mission. I, the glory of God is the motivation for my mission. Jesus Christ was motivated by, when I say the glory of God, I mean, please don't, don't stick stained glass behind me and just go, ooh, the glory of God, ooh. Let's sing a song, ooh. The glory of God is the aspects of God. It's his graciousness. Jesus Christ was on a mission to reveal the grace of God and what it was like. That if you don't respond to me right, I will still be to you what you don't deserve me to be to you. Watch. And the grace of God goes on display. Now, do you see that anywhere more clearly than in the person of Christ? Who, you know, he's got disciples around him who are calling down fire. They're looking to chop people's heads off. And Jesus is undeterred. He's going to go on his mission. He's going to the cross. He's on the cross. They're mocking him. I mean, the greatest moment in human history is, is on display. And there's these knuckleheads around the foot of the cross who are laughing and spitting, telling jokes. Now, the glory of Keith went on display, and I had an ounce of power. An ounce That'd be the last time those people were ever mentioned anywhere. <laughs> but what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the glory of God on display. It's never more clear. Grudem goes on and says, God's patience means God's goodness in withholding of punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. These three characteristics of God's nature are often mentioned together as when God declared his name to Moses. Listen, we, we, see, we see this compassion. If you studied through, I actually did a series on this years ago. When you guys might remember years ago we did a series called Beholding His Glory. It was a study of the glory of God as revealed in the person of Christ through the book of Luke. And... You know, you get to a passage like this, you, Luke chapter 4, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Listen, he, he found something he wanted to read. I want to read this. I want you to hear this about my mission. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you hear the compassion of God in that? You know, I wonder sometimes when God starts with Moses and he says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. You do remember that that's, that's the first quality of God that Moses questioned. When he pulled aside on Exodus chapter 3 to look at the burning bush, he raised the question of, do you not hear the cries of your people? 
Right? What was he asking about? God, what, if you, what are you like? Aren't you moved? Don't you hear their pain? What are you going to do about this? And it's interesting that Jesus opens this inaugural passage. He says, I've come as a man. I've come into your pain. I've come into your world to care for your need. That's the compassion of God on display. When Jesus looked at the crowds, Matthew chapter 9, and he says that he looked upon them and he saw them. They were disheveled, dispersed. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And the Bible said he was moved by compassion. And you know what he did next? He was moved by compassion and he mobilized his disciples. He told them, listen, this is, this is why you pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. What was it that motivated Jesus to call on the church to be evangelistic? It was his compassion. He looked upon a people who were wandering like sheep who didn't have anybody to care for them, nobody to put their lives back together when they wandered off into a mess. And out of his compassion, he called on his church to do something, to be on a mission. That's what you see when the light goes through the person of Christ and the compassion of God goes on display. Remember in John chapter 11, when Jesus walks into the scene of Lazarus being dead, Martha and Mary come running out to him. Mary begins to pour out her heart. Oh, Jesus, if you had been here. And they're weeping and weeping. The Bible says that Jesus was deeply moved. And he wept. Why was, why was Jesus deeply moved and weeping? Was it because Lazarus was dead? Well, in a way, yeah, but it wasn't because that was going to be a problem. He knows in just a few moments Lazarus is coming out of that tomb. Why was Jesus deeply moved? Why was he was affected? What was he affected by? He was affected by what the fall was doing to Mary and Martha. As they are undone by this sudden loss of one that they have grown attached to their whole life. Lazarus is gone. They're in despair and they're affected by that. They're pulled down by that. Jesus was deeply moved. On display goes the compassion of God. Listen, God is good to those who are in misery. Part of the mission of Jesus Christ was to come and to put the glory of God on display in how God reaches into the brokenness of this world. And he pours out his care and support for us. Well, what about his love? We took a few weeks to study the love of God. Remember, when God passed by Moses, he said that he was abounding in loving kindness. The word there is that hesed word. It's this it's God's own love. I almost hate to put it in another category because you know, the Bible actually uses that phrase about God's own love. Uh, with his own love, he loved us. He's, he's got his unique brand of love, this said love of God, this faithful, steadfast, you can't get me to stop kind of love. You can't deter me kind of love. A determination filled and abounding and overflowing, full of desire toward us kind of love. Now, now, listen, you know, these things are all tied together. 
you know, why is Jesus so moved while he's standing with Mary? Because he loves Mary. And Mary's suffering. Suffering for us is without a competitor in casting questions upon our love for God, or his love for us, rather. When suffering enters into our world, right, all of a sudden we start wondering, well, uh, does God really love? Is God really love? I mean, weighty things happen. I mean, you, th- you think of a Mary, and Mary is just like any of us. We have built our lives together with another human being. We don't know what it is to, to have life without this person being a significant part of it. And then all of a sudden, that person's gone. And your life now goes on without them. Listen, that's a weighty concept. I'm not trying to be philosophical here, but sometimes when I do funerals, I I try to get my mind around that. Because that's what people are going through. What do you do with that? How do you resolve that kind of emotion and weight? Or tragedy happens, or natural disaster happens, and you multiply that 250,000 times in Haiti. And you think about how many people are trying to figure out what just happened. How does this make sense? I've lost my children. It's weighty. It's heavy. And when you walk through that, who is God? How do you understand God in that moment? Well, God shot the invisibleness of his love into the person of Christ so that it could be clearly seen. Listen, I I don't see clearly when I stare at Haiti. I see clearly when I stare at Christ. It's clearly on display. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Listen to this, 1 John 3.16. It's a good way to remember those 3.16s about the love of God. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Are you looking to figure out what love looks like, looking to define it, looking to understand it? This is how we know it, the Bible says. This is how we know love. He laid down his life for us. He, the person who he is, God himself in the universe, laid down his life for us, the people who we are. Rebels and sinners and unattractive to a holy God. Listen, we might be attractive to each other because we're amongst more like ourselves. God is not like us. He is Kadash. So when he looks upon us, there's, there's not this sense of attraction the way in which we find attraction. But there is a love that is a God kind of love that he comes pouring into our lives. This is how we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's where we get that understanding. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
How do you know if God loves you? I look at that little secret device that God sent. That without it, I'm going to be confused. I may be uncertain, but when I look at the secret device and the invisible God becomes visible and his character goes on display and one of his characteristics is love, I see what that love looks like when I look at Christ and that he came for me and gave his life for me. John Stott says, apart from Christ and his cross, the world would never have known what true love is. And that's a, that's a statement worth chewing on because you and I think we experience love. But God comes in and, give, and gives us a whole new definition, if you will, for love. The perfect God of the universe is going to give up his son as a sacrifice for undeserving rebellious sinners. That doesn't sound like the note that I passed the girl in sixth grade. Does it? You're cute, and the next note might say, I love you. Do you love me? You know, we have a different understanding of love. God puts this thing in warp drive and takes it to a whole nother level. This is how we know God's love. Only one act of pure love, unsullied by any taint of ulterior motive, has ever been performed in the history of the world, namely the self-giving of God in Christ on the cross for undeserving sinners. That is why if we are looking for a definition of love, we should look not in a dictionary, but at Calvary. And let me take us out of the dictionary, because some of us are looking at not the dictionary, but the encyclopedia of our lives. And we're looking for a definition for does God love me? And we're looking into this event that happened, and that event that happened, and my health and my finances, and my divorce, and why did that go on? And I don't understand that thing over there. And it's like we're flipping through the pages of this encyclopedia of our experience trying to answer the question, does God love me? Okay, can I, I tell you like I have to tell myself? You won't find the answer there. That's not the place to look for the definition of the love of God. Look where it is most clearly on display. By this we know love. God sent his son to die on a cross. Now, if I read that definition, I walk away. Can you just extract yourself for a moment? Can you have an out-of-body experience for a moment here? Just take your life and just leave it over here for a second. Let's just all of us go into this room where there's just complete absolute silence and we open up this book and it defines love for us. Forget everything about your life for a moment. Does God love me? And I look and I open up to the cross and I find the Son of God sent for me to die in my place. Does God love you? Yes, he does. It's crystal clear. Now I go back into my world, and instantly I'm back into my body that doesn't work right, into the feelings of rejection, of relationships that failed, and parents, and needs, and the future that I don't know about. 
and we start shopping again for the answer to does God love me? Listen, you can't do that. You don't find the answer there. You find the answer by looking to Calvary to determine does God love? This is why it's so critical that Jesus Christ came to earth because there are things about God that you could never know and you could never be certain about unless you look at Christ and the invisible God becomes visible to us. What about, what about the other aspects mentioned in Exodus 34? Right, we move from God's compassion, he's slow to anger, his loving kindness that abounds, and then he puts this little thing on the end, yet he doesn't allow the guilty to go unpunished. He tells Jeremiah that he delights in loving kindness and justice. God delights in justice because God is just. That's who he is. So you have these other components of justice and righteousness as well as forgiveness all mixed together. Now look at this passage with me. It's the last thing we'll look at. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Verse 21. Now, if you will, Romans, you know, if, you, if you've read Romans, I know most of you have, and we studied through Romans a number of years ago, um, left more on the table than we looked at, for sure. But Romans, if you will, is, is, is God's commentary on the gospel. It, it's, it's peeling it back and looking at it and explaining it to us. If you understand that the whole Bible zeroes in on the person of Christ. Right? He just happens to appear at this point in human history, but the whole Bible is zeroing in on the person of Christ. And then he's coming to earth the way in which he is, and he's going to do a particular thing. He's going to do many things to reveal aspects of God to us, but the most profound thing that's going to happen is he's going to go to the cross and die and be resurrected. And so you know, there's, there's where you find the epicenter of the earthquake of the Bible. And then Romans tries to explain that to us. It tries to reach all the way back into Jewish history and grab revelation from there. It's, it's trying to grab the Bible and pull it into this vortex of the gospel. And so we come to a, a passage like this. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now he's talking about Christ, what he did. Remember, because in Jeremiah, God is the God, if you're going to boast in knowing me, I'm the God of loving kindness and justice and righteousness, and these things I delight. What do you mean by righteousness? Well, here's what you mean by righteousness. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, there's so much in these passages. I'm going to resist trying to unpack all this. And, but, you know, you get a rich word like redemption that's in Christ Jesus. What does that tell you about God? Right, That word redemption, it, it is God pursuing in order to make a purchase. 
It's God coming after us to pay for something, to buy us back. And does that communicate something to you about God and what he's like towards you? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Some of your translations say his justice. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in this person of Christ, something's gone on here that has put God on display And the characteristics of God's justice have been seen here. His righteousness has been seen here. The NIV translates verse 25 this way. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Jesus Christ comes and does what he does in order to put a billboard up that proclaims something about the justice of God. Jesus puts the justice of God on display, right? The same way you gaze at the heavens and you go, wow. I may not know who put that there, but whoever did, it's got a long arm. <laughs> That's some severe power going on. Right? Well, when I, I look at Christ, I see something about God go on display. I see his justice. And it says he did this on purpose. He did this to demonstrate his justice. And so look, see, I am a just God. You see that? Were you wondering? I am a just God. Why would we be wondering? Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. what's, What's that about? He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished? Now, does anybody have a problem with that? I mean, honestly, right, when you when you take your sins and unpack them. If God were to leave them unpunished, would any of y'all have a problem with that? Okay, can I tell you this? I hope you would. Because if God ever became unfaithful to who he is, because remember who he said he was. I'm compassionate, I'm merciful, filled with loving kindness, yet I do not allow sin to go unpunished. If God ever became unfaithful to who he is, what makes you think he'd love you tomorrow? What makes you think he'd be gracious? He might not be faithful in that category. God decided to take your sin and just say, well, you know what? I'm just not in the mood to punish that today. We're just, we're just going to act like I didn't see it. I know I'm omnipresent and I can see everything, but I'm going to act like I didn't see that. And we'll just go on. Okay, God now has become unfaithful to who he is. God has ceased to be who he is. God, show me your glory. And he passes by, remember? He passes by and he says, this is who I am, Moses. I can't help but be who I am. This is who I am. I punish sin. So we have a problem here. Because apparently... In his forbearance, in his patience, another aspect of God's character, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. All throughout the Old Testament, 
everything leading up to the cross. He had left sins unpunished. You guys remember the story we looked at about David? The man who committed adultery and then committed murder? Didn't own up to it, tried to hide it, go about his business and be on his way, collected the wife. Nathan the prophet comes to him, tells him the story, discloses his sin. And David comes under the conviction, probably had been wrestling with this for quite some time in his life. And finally comes forward and he says, oh, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Okay, now remember the God that Moses saw, he punishes sin. And Nathan turns to him and says, you're not going to die, David. God has put your sin away. What? What did you just say? God has put your sin away? What does that mean he put it away? Does it mean he just swept it under the carpet? No, he, he put your sin away. But he didn't say this, but he could have if he knew what Romans said. But it's going to go on display again. Your sin got put on the tab. Like all these moments were as though God had a credit card and the sins that were not punished were put on the tab one after another, after another, after another, after another. And the debt was piling up and piling up and piling up and piling up and piling up until one day the Son of God was going to stand and was going to pay that price. See, when we look in this passage What goes on display here is the justice of God. Stott says, no one can now accuse God of condoning evil and so of moral indifference or injustice. The cross demonstrates with equal vividness both his justice in judging sin and his mercy in justifying the sinner. For now as a result of the propitiatory death of his son, God can be just and the justifier of those who believe in him. He is able to bestow a righteous status on the unrighteous without compromising his own righteousness. Listen, can I, can I say this? You know what this allows God to do for you? And, and this is sometimes confusing about who God is to us. This allows God to be unpredictable to you in some ways. Because you're thinking, holy God, he's righteous and he's just and he says he punishes sin and then you commit sin and you, and you kind of, you're waiting for the other foot to drop, waiting for God to show up and smash your world because you, you sinned. I mean, you did something that deserves God to oppose it and punish it and you're, you're just waiting for that to happen and days go by and months go by and it never, the foot never drops and start getting confused and why? How come that didn't? Oh, the shoe dropped, all right. It dropped with full force when God poured out his punishment on his son. And if you're waiting for God to do that again, he will never do that again. You will never be punished for those sins. That's why David wasn't punished for those sins. Now, David got disciplined by God That's different than the punishment for his sin falling upon him. Because his sins were put away, they were placed upon Christ. Now that's where we get this word in this passage, that propitiation word. 
What does that word propitiation tell me about God? Well, when Jesus paid the penalty, who did he pay the price to? When Jesus goes to the cross and he's going to pay the penalty for sin, there's a price tag. He's He's going to write a check, if you will, with his life, with his own blood. Who does he give the check to? Who does he hand the payment to? Listen, be careful that you don't get into some strange theology. You know, there's this cosmic darkness and light battle taking place here, and the enemy, and Jesus paid the devil. Oh, no, he did not. The devil was not owed anything. The devil is just, he's just a tool in the hands of God. You, you overblow the devil when you make him compete with God for something that's going on in the universe. The price that was paid had to be paid to God himself. Because when God revealed himself, he was a God of love and mercy and grace and loving kindness, but he was also a righteous and just God that had to be satisfied in him. He could not just look away from it. Those sins had to be paid for. So when Jesus Christ delivers over the check, he puts it right into the hand of the Father. Listen, whether you've come across this or not, you're going to come across something that drills holes in that theology. Because people don't like that. People don't like the idea that God had to be satisfied by his own son shedding blood. That just sounds so ungodlike. Un- wait, wait. Ungodlike from where? Not from here. Ungodlike when I go to invent God. That's not how I would invent him. Maybe you wouldn't either, but I wouldn't invent God that way. That his own innocent son's going to have to shed his blood and, and deliver his life over to God for God to be satisfied and okay? Who would do that? Well, then why did Jesus die? Well, you know, Jesus was the most loving person who ever lived. He he died to, to give us an example of what love looks like and for us to live our lives compelled by that kind of love. <laughs> you just took all the screws out of Christianity and shook it to pieces and it's fallen apart in your hands. Was it love? Oh, yes, it was love. Was it a demonstration of love? Yes, it was a demonstration of love. Did Jesus die to be an example to us? Not like that. He died because God is a just and righteous God who punishes sin. It had to be punished. That's why he dies. And what you see in the cross is you see all this on display. Right? The light gets bent, and I see it. I see love, and I see mercy. I see compassion. I see justice. A God who did not spare his own son from himself, from his justice. God was faithful to be who he is. Listen, today, today God calls us to, to know him to see him and to respond to all that he is, to respond to all that he is. 
When you and I put our faith in God, it's, it's to be in this God, this God who goes on display most clearly in the person of Christ. You and I don't get to pick and choose because everything I've described today is aspects of the worthiness of God. God is worthy because he's righteous and he's just and he's merciful and he's loving and he's compassionate and he cares about us. God is worthy. All of that makes up who God is. Listen, when you, when you, when you come to this God and put your faith in him, now think with me for a moment. Do you believe that God is love? Do you believe that God is compelled towards you by an overwhelming love that's unique to him? That his affection and compassion is towards your life. He sees you in your suffering. That this God is actually capable of, of crying tears over your condition. Do you believe in that God? Do you believe in this God who, who is righteous and just so much so that he cannot stop being that. And there will have to be, there will have to be a payment for the sins that you and I have committed. Do you believe in that, God? Do you believe that God is a forgiving God? Why would God forgive you? There's a reason why he'd forgive you. Because he takes your sin and the penalty of your sin and he puts it on his son. And he tells you, look to him. He'll pay for you. He'll take your tab and he'll pay the whole thing. And the only reason why you would look to that person to make that payment is because the, you believe the payment must be made. If you believe in a God who's not this God, well then somehow that God might not need a payment. And you just need to improve your life or be a better person or go to church a few more times. But if you believe in the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible revealed himself as a God who punishes sin. He's, he's going to be as faithful to punish sin as he is to love you. The most loving thing he ever did was to figure out a way to keep you from having to pay the penalty. Do you believe in that God? If you believe in that God, maybe you're here this morning and some of these things, maybe God's just putting them together. He does that sometimes, just makes things come together in our minds and we understand. We've heard a lot of these things before, maybe we haven't put them together. Listen, you can come this morning into relationship with that God. If you're not, and you're uncertain about that, you can this morning come into relationship with this God. You can look to Christ and put your hope and trust in him and put faith in Christ that he did actually pay for your sins. Listen, you'll never have to live in the fear that God will one day respond to you out of punishment. He will never respond to you in punishment because that cup is empty, poured on his son. If you're here this morning and you're wondering, I don't really know. What would happen to me if I died this morning? If I died this week? You know, man, if I, if I lived a good enough life, if I... I think, I hope God would be okay with me. I'm not sure. 
Listen, if you're not sure, it's because you've still got some faith in you and what you need to do. That's the only way you can be unsure. If I'm telling you that there's a God who paid 100% of the price of your sin, he paid every last penny. And if you trust him, you'll have nothing left to pay. And then I tell you, you're going to be okay with God if you die. What are you going to tell me? Well, I hope so. No. You're going to tell me, yes, I'm good because I don't owe. All the debt's been paid. Listen, I want to reach out to you this morning. If you're here and there's hesitancy or you're not sure, that not being sure, it's telling you something about what you believe. It's telling you that you've put your faith in something that's not sure. That's why you're not sure. Well, you can be sure this morning. You can put your faith in Christ, and he will be as faithful in his forgiveness and in his love and in his promise to you for all eternity as God was faithful to have his son yield his life on a cross. That faithfulness screams about who God will be to you in the future. If he did that to his son, he'll be faithful to give you life forever. Let's, let's stand up together. Just ask if you just close your eyes and, and let God communicate himself to you, wherever it is that you are, what you need to receive this morning from him. In just a moment, we're going to we're going to close with a song and worship God and take in who God is and consider these great things about God that we've been learning. But if you're here this morning and, and, and you want to be certain, you want to be certain that your sins are forgiven and you're right with God, you want to be certain that next week when stuff's happening in your life, it's not God visiting some punishment on you. You want to be certain that for all eternity, you're going to be with God and he's going to be your God and you're going to live and enjoy him and worship him. Well, if you want to be certain about that this morning, and you're not certain, you're here this morning, you're not certain, what a great opportunity you have right now to make sure, to embrace God and put your faith and trust in him. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to just come forward. In just a moment, we're going to pray and sing. And I'm going to send somebody to come pray with you. So if you're here this morning and you want somebody to come pray with you, you want to be certain about that this morning. Come out from where you are. Step out from your seat. Come forward. Um, just come right up here to the front so I can find you easily. And we'll find somebody who will come over and pray with you. And this morning, you can be sure. Listen, you, 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 don't, you don't want to be interpreting your life as to what side of God's activity are you on. You can be on the favor of God's side to where what God does for the rest of your life and into eternity is to pour out upon you loving kindness, steadfast love and mercy and compassion, free from the fear that you'll ever face a judgment for your own sin. But you need to put your faith in Christ. So if you're here this morning and that's what you want to do, go ahead. Come out from where you are. Don't wait. Come out from where you are. Come up here and let us pray with you.
be certain today. those of us who are about to to sing in just a moment. You know, God reveals himself to us that we might know him. And in knowing him, we might trust him, enjoy him, worship him, respond to him. Next week, that's where Peter will go with a message of our response to knowing God. But consider as you worship what God has shown you to be about himself. When you believe on God, don't don't put on your blue blockers, right? And and limit God. Move toward God. Everything God has revealed in the person of Christ inclines us to come. Inclines us to come. Wow, man, that justice thing, that doesn't incline me to come. What does when you understand the justice of God was made known on the person of Christ and not on you? It certainly inclines you to come. So Christian, if you're here this morning, fond affection should be stirred in our hearts. Worship of an amazing God, the God who put the expanse of the heavens out before us and then shot clear the image of who he is in the person of Christ and made known to us a mind-blowing love and compassion and grace and mercy into our lives. So when we sing, let our singing be informed by what we've just discovered as we've studied God these many weeks. Let worship be filled with content as we respond to who God is in song. Lord of heaven's light Descended into evil's darkest night Infinitely holy, your perfections know no end. 